From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome everyone to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Opioids are among the most powerful and the most effective painkillers on the planet. But they're also among the most addictive. And doctors and patients alike struggle with finding the perfect balance between proper pain management and addiction. The addiction field is trying to understand how to either predict patients who are more likely to be addicted, and we have some tools available. But for the average clinician, it's very, very difficult to tell. Also on the program, controlling cholesterol is about more than what you eat, the surprising role that stress can play. And drugs that increase healthy aging in mice, coming soon to humans. All that along with this week's health and medical news right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, in the year 2012, healthcare providers wrote 259 million prescriptions for opioid or narcotic pain medications. Now, that's enough for every adult in the United States to have their own bottle of opioid painkiller. The CDC also says that between 2007 and 2012, opioid prescriptions increased per capita by more than 7%. Now, most of the prescribing was done by family physicians and general internal medicine providers. The steady increase in the use of opioid pain medications has led to growing addiction and a rise in drug-related deaths. It has prompted the CDC to recently issue new prescribing guidelines for opioid pain medications. Here to talk about the value and the risks associated with opioid pain medications and the new guidelines for prescribing them, guidelines from the CDC, is Dr. John Ebert. Dr. Ebert is a primary care internal medicine specialist at Mayo Clinic. Welcome to the program, Dr. Ebert. Nice to have you. It's a pleasure to be here. We've uh, had you here to talk about this before, and the problem isn't getting any better. But it's certainly, I think, people, are they becoming more aware of the problem with opioids? They are becoming more aware, and then a government is getting more involved. Mm -hmm. And you've seen that now with some of the announcements from uh, uh, President Barack Obama and the proposals in front of Congress in terms of how we're going to expand the way that we're approaching this problem uh, from a public perspective, but also expanding our treatment options for patients who suffer from opioid dependence. Why did the government need to get involved? Why couldn't the medical profession solve this problem on their own? That's a great question. I, I think it's the sheer numbers. I think when we started to see the numbers of people overdosing from opioids uh, exceed uh, deaths from car accidents, um, mm-hmm. people started to sit up and take notice. And then it became clear as the evidence started to emerge that we were actually creating some of these issues. As prescribers, we were trying to address pain. We were prescribing opioids in record numbers because it was, for a while there, pain was the fifth vital sign. It was, you know, we had to do a pain assessment. Some of us remember the little pictures of faces and how much pain are you in. And the the fact of the matter is, is we all have some level of pain. And really, it's about suffering. So I think what we got confused by 
was what exactly the goals were. Um, and it wasn't just you have pain, we give a pill. It really is how do you increase function. So we didn't really have good targets to begin with, and it became a widespread problem. And then we also noted that the evidence became suggestive of that when patients were cut off, from opioid prescriptions that were started legally by Mm -hmm. a provider for approved reasons Mm -hmm. that they were switching to heroin because heroin was cheaper. uh, It was more accessible. And these people were opioid dependent um, iatrogenically or or from, you know, physicians um, prescriptions uh, and they became dependent on it. And once they were um, taken off the medication, they didn't have anywhere else to turn. And so some of them uh, went to street drugs. It sounds like uh, the medical profession is sort of handing this stuff out like candy. I don't think that's quite true, but isn't it also a fact that for years the medical profession was criticized because we weren't doing a very good job of taking care of, of pain in our patients? That's correct. So, so at the turn of the century, that was really what we saw. The IO uh, Institute of Medicine report about treating pain and under treatment of pain really was the sort of the uh, salvo of saying we really need to do a better job treating pain. And certainly what makes the news are those pill mills or those clinicians that are actually prescribing these medications for money. But the vast, vast majority of clinicians are prescribing these medications thoughtfully and appropriately. Um, But when we get to the other side of it, uh, when the pain doesn't stop or it's a different type of pain or it doesn't improve function, there aren't any tools available to the clinician to lean on to, to facilitate uh, an appropriate, helpful transition from opioid medications to other types of pain-relieving agents. And the fact of the matter is, is we really don't have a lot of great options clinically. I mean, I think that we have a, a really short list of things that we can turn to as clinicians to help patients with pain. It seems though there's a step missing. You have the accident or you have the surgery or whatever it is, and you get the prescription And then not everybody who takes that prescription is going to become addicted. But if that does happen, that's where it was just kind of falling over. And, well, what are we going to do? I mean, and you say there's not a lot of things you can do? Right. Um, I I think there's a couple issues there. Um, You know, one of the things that we need to be sensitive that is a complexity of this is that patients who are on chronic long-term opioids, for whatever reason, are dependent. But the question we ask is, are they addicted? And there's a, back in the old days, uh, we used to say that um, dependence is not addiction. And there's this new thought out there that, that trying to distinguish between dependence and addiction is a distinction without a difference. That is to say, if you are taking these medications long term and you stop them abruptly, you will have withdrawal. That's dependence. If you are taking them to to make yourself feel better or get high, that's potentially addiction. Uh, but what does it mean for the individual patient? And that's really where we're struggling. The addiction field is trying to understand how to either predict patients who are more likely to be addicted, and we have some tools available. But for the average clinician, it's very, very difficult to tell. 
And because patients have early refills, it may not be that they're drug-seeking. It's that we're inadequately treating their pain. This field is so complex. It's so complex, and we're really just trying to find our way. But what is true is for those patients that are dependent, we don't have a lot of tools to get them off of the opioids. And I think that's what uh, President Obama is proposing with some of the rule changes about some of these office-based opioid treatment therapies that we have, like buprenorphine, and, and, and getting more physicians able to prescribe those so that we can get patients on uh, medications that aren't these prescription opioids that are more likely to be abused. It's a complicated area. Isn't it very difficult to know when a patient could potentially become addicted? I mean, why can't you say if you knew, here's the here's the medication, you don't take any more than three of these a day for 14 days or you have the potential to become addicted? You don't know that, do you? Or do you have a pretty good idea? Well, that's a, there are tools out there, and there's there are, based upon epidemiologic studies and sort of these development of these clinical tools to ask patients. So if they have a history of alcohol dependence, certainly that increases their risk of, of likely to become addicted. If they have a, a family history of drug dependence or if the patient has been previously uh, sexually abused, um, all of these increase the risk. These are markers for someone who's more likely to be addicted. Does that mean you won't treat those patients with pain medications? No, but you have to have the tools at the other end when they become addicted. I have a lot of patients who don't like opioids. Um, they say, I get off them, they self-titrate, but I have a lot of patients that what, wind... What, what was that? They oh, sorry, they take themselves off. Okay. So we give them you know, for pain and, and they stop them because they don't like the way that they make them feel. And But I also have a lot of patients, once you put them on it, they're like, wow, this seems to be helping a lot of my other issues. And one of the challenges here is that we know that opioids can help with depression. And certainly we know per, don't prescribe them for depression, but morphine has been well described as something that can alleviate depression. Now, maybe we're all chronically depressed. You know, maybe maybe the patients who wind up on these pain medications are treating their depression and no longer their pain. And there's a distinction also between what is pain and what is suffering. Two people may have the same level of pain, but two people interpret it completely differently. One is pain and one is suffering. And maybe what we're dealing with the opioid epidemic is we're trying to treat suffering with opioids, and that's our real problem. All right, one more question before we yes. uh, finish. Shepard, we've been talking about opioids. What, and when we say that, when you talk about the term, what are op- opioids? So opioids are any medication that's derived from morphine or codeine, which are the natural ingredients in the um, pop uh, in the poppy plant uh, or papaver somniferum. Um, and we have synthetic analogs or synthetic derivatives of those. So those are things that we commonly refer to as, you know, common medications would be oxycodone or hydrocodone. Um, and then, of course, there's morphine and fentanyl, some of these other medications. Um, and all of them are, um, I think the proper term is opioids. We sometimes refer to them as narcotics. Narcotics is really a terminology used to do, refer to any illegal substance, and that's really a law enforcement term. In the medical profession, we do prefer opioids. It's a little bit more specific and tells us that we're dealing with those drugs that are derived from morphine and codeine. And, and that word you use, popisiniferin? Yeah, that was the, that's the genus and species of the poppy plant where you get, um, where you get the morphine and Way codeine. Way above your that pay grade. Is, no kidding. That's a word that I'll never remember. Dr. John Ebert, Primary Care Internal Medicine, Mayo Clinic. We'll take a short break. When we come back, myth or matter of fact, if your doctor prescribes an opioid pain medication for you, you should expect to be reevaluated within a few weeks. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. 
Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. We're back talking about opioid pain medications with Mayo Clinic Primary Care Internal Medicine Specialist, Dr. John Ebert. Well, Dr. Ebert, myth or matter of fact, if your doctor prescribes an opioid pain medication for you, you should be a, you should expect to be reevaluated within a few weeks. Is that a myth or a fact? Uh, that would be best practice. A perfect actually. world is what that is. It, yeah, it would be. And those were based on some of the, the guidelines that were re- recently released by the CDC. Um, that would be an ideal um, time after you start something within one or two weeks to evaluate whether it's working. And really what you're looking for is improved function. All right, but these are for people who are going to potentially be on it long term. I mean, if you give me a, some oxycodone after I had my wisdom teeth out and I take it for three days, I don't need to come back and see you. That's right? correct. Yeah. Okay. Long term so, use, you ought to follow on. That's right. For the, you said before the break, the difference between dependence and addiction, um, and that that is a fine line. It is two different things. Explain once again what the difference is between those two. Um, so when if someone's on uh, these medications long term, um, they will start to develop tolerance. That is, that the the same dose does not treat their pain as well. And then if you stop it abruptly, they'll have withdrawal. They'll have um, you know sweats and 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 they'll have sort of physiologic changes that they just feel really uncomfortable. Um, and and that's dependence, but and we expect that if you're on opioids for a long enough period of time, six to eight weeks, you're dependent on it. The question is, are you addicted? That is, are you using the medication to cope with other things like depression, anxiety? Um, or those are that's when it becomes very difficult in assessing a patient to figure out where they uh, they are. So, what is it that makes about the opioids that makes them so addictive? So I think it, it, it you know, it, 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 it relates to the complexity of the drug and it relates to the receptors of the brain. We have, we have, we have opioid receptors in our brain, uh, because our brain actually has receptors to what we produce endogenously, that the things that we naturally make. We have our own, uh, sort of pain relief, um, sort of, uh, network in our brain. And so we make those. We make endogenous opioids. And these ex- extraneous opioids, uh, interact with those receptors. And you can get euphoria, uh, you get pain relief. Um, and, and those are the things that are typically described when, uh, when patients take, um, opioids. Not all patients have that effect when they take the opioids. It just shows you, uh, that not Two, no two patients are created equally, and no two are going to have the same response to the medication. How easy or how difficult is it to to overdose yourself when you're taking these medications? It's, it's not that easy, is it? It it, it is not that easy. What one of the th- what I think um, people um, struggle with is when they're and what we see with these with these overdoses and many of the overdoses. So if we looked at the statistics, you'd see about 19,000 prescribed opioid overdoses and 11,000, you know, uh, heroin overdoses in, in 2014. So those are kind of the numbers that we're dealing with. Um, and what happens is patients who have access to a lot of medications are given prescriptions with a lot uh, with 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 a lot of pills in them bottles. What they try to do is they try to get pain free 
or they're trying to alleviate mood disorders or anxiety disorders, and they take higher and higher mm-hmm. doses. And then actually what happens is they get respiratory depression, they stop breathing, and that's how they die typically. And so with the CDC issued these new guidelines, is that going to be helpful to physicians? Do you agree with what they're doing or what they said? Yeah, so as I reviewed those, many of those were best practices that we've started to implement in our own practice, um, and and they're really good general guidelines. I think um, the concern I always hear is when we have these guidelines that they do become the standard of care, and if you fall short of that, then you're not, you know, you're not, you're not engaged in standard of care, and then that obviously opens up. Um, you know, uh, legal concerns. Um, I think the I think the issue uh, here is that if those are best practices, those are good guidelines. I think, and as I said, the concern is that patients who have legitimate pain needs, um, it may make um, you know receiving those medications maybe more difficult. But but I think this is something that we have to do. We have to have these conversations about how to improve the way that we you know prescribe these medications i brought a, a recent news story and it it had to do with the what the cdc has been saying recently in the obama administration one of the things was that they want to exp- expand medicaid coverage for substance abuse care and increase use of a drug that saves people from overdoses what does that mean what is that drug and it sounds like if you got this drug you're not going to overdose the drug is naloxone and naloxone has been used in clinical practice. I mean, I remember 20 years ago in the ICU giving naloxone for patients who had too many opioids, um, and we would give it, and that, that naloxone drug that we would give inter- intravenously would block the sedating, kind of the sleepiness effects and the decreased uh, breathing that you get with opioids. It would block that so the patients would perk up. The problem is it's very short-acting, and the, and so it, it goes away, but the opioids are still around. Now we have a new way to deliver it, um, and the way we can deliver it is nasally. And so people who have opioid dependence and have family members around them could get naloxone in the old days, but it was a needle, and you had to inject it, and people are afraid of injecting needles, and were, there was a lot of discomfort with that. Now with the nasal naloxone, you can actually save lives, and, and I think that the naloxone programs that actually are distributing the, this type of medication to heroin addicts and people on opioids have shown that it's saved lives, many, many cases of people being saved by naloxone given nasally. You know, we really have just a less than a minute sure. remaining, and we haven't even talked about treatment. But in, in a word, how difficult is it to get people uh, off of the, uh, when they're addicted to opioids, and uh, how successful are you? There's two main uh, ways to do that. One is methadone program. I mean, so if you have someone who's dependent that you want to transition to another, to a treatment, uh, methadone programs, but those are only given at licensed facilities. So those are those methadone maintenance treatment programs. Uh, the office-based opioid therapy with buprenorphine is something um, that uh, that I think the Obama administration is trying to expand so that we can give more patients this treatment. And those are the things you'd go to if you cannot successfully taper them or transition them to other non-opioid pain-relieving medication. Difficult problem. Thanks so much for being with us, Dr. Ebert. Thanks. Dr. John Ebert is a primary care internal medicine specialist at Mayo Clinic. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, can being stressed out raise your cholesterol levels? The answer might surprise you. And drugs that reduce the number of aging cells in mice has helped them ward off age-related diseases. Can the same drugs benefit 
benefit humans? Have a health-related question you'd like us to answer or a topic you'd like us to cover? You can tweet us anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or send us an email at mayoclinicradio at mayo.edu. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams with your Mayo Clinic Minute. Kids' use of caffeine is the focus of a study in the Journal of Nutrition, Education, and Behavior. It explores the factors that influence kids to drink caffeine in hopes of developing ways to reduce consumption and potential harms. Kids seem to be a little bit more susceptible to the effects of caffeine. It raises blood pressure a little bit more in children. Mayo Clinic nutrition expert Dr. Donald Hendrude says caffeine may also disrupt sleep. He says moderation is key for kids who get caffeine from products such as soda, coffee, coffee, chocolate, and energy drinks. The other problem with children drinking caffeine is they're not drinking something else that's probably healthier, such as good old water or milk. So, until experts learn more about how much caffeine is really safe for our kids, Dr. Hensrud says less is probably best. And now here's a common scenario. You take a sniff and then taste of your food and it seems something's missing. Well, some loss of smell and taste is natural with aging, especially after age 60. But other factors could contribute to it, including allergies, sinusitis, certain medications, smoking, dental issues, Alzheimer's disease, or Parkinson's disease. Loss of taste and smell can really have an impact on quality of life. So if you have it, talk to your health care provider. You can't reverse age-related loss of taste and smell, but some causes are treatable. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Well, it's been known for a long time that if you eat foods that are high in trans fats and saturated fats, you can increase your cholesterol levels. And we also know that high cholesterol levels can lead to heart disease and stroke. And eating certain fatty foods triggers your body to make more cholesterol, some of which may end up clogging your arteries, and that's what ends up causing the the strokes and the heart attacks. That's not good. No, not at all. Well, there's also evidence that high cholesterol can be caused by stress. Studies have shown that stress can trigger your body to make cholesterol. This is because under stress, your body makes a hormone called cortisol. And long-term stress can result in the production of high levels of cortisol. And it's these high levels of cortisol that have been linked to increased cholesterol. Well, you know the science behind this. I'm ready for a quiz. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to talk. Well, let's talk to the expert. Dr. Okay. Stephen Kopetsky. He is a cardiologist at the Mayo Clinic. He's a cholesterol expert. Always good to have you on the program, Dr. Kopetsky. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Tom and Tracy. So if, um, you know, eating bad foods, eating fatty foods and lack of exercise weren't enough, now there's pretty good evidence that stress can also increase your cholesterol. Yes, Tom, there is, and it's been known for over half a century. They looked at uh, accountants, tax accountants, over 50 years ago that had their own businesses that were doing tax returns. And what's the day you think of? April 15th. (laughs) These tax accountants, they controlled for their diet, they controlled for their exercise, they controlled for their weight, but they tracked their cholesterol, and it went from a little over 200 up to about 240, up until, guess what, April 15th, then it started coming down after that. Year after year? Well, this was one study. Okay. But they replicated with other groups, such as medical students, taking little interim pop quizzes or small quizzes versus the finals. And there was more higher cholesterol rising with the finals than with the interim tests. 
And there is a scientific explanation for this, as Tracy alluded to? Yes, there is, because it's the flight or fright phenomenon. When we were under stress a million years ago, we were usually running from a saber-toothed tiger. We needed some energy to run. We needed to get away and survive. It was a mechanism to make us live longer. That sugar that poured into our system then helped our cells, our muscle cells, go as fast as they could. Unfortunately, when our stress now is more from something you see on TV or in your workplace. Taxes. Taxes, right. (laughs) Then you're not necessarily running off that extra sugar, and it gets stored away as fat, and it leads to the cholesterol buildup. So we should get up and run a 5K every time we think about our taxes. Maybe that would help. That may not be a bad idea. (laughs) Where do you get the bill? You might be getting a refund. You never know. (laughs) So is this, um, does it matter uh, if it's short-term stress or long-term stress? Uh, Either one will raise your cholesterol? Yes. it, It seems either one will raise your cholesterol. And the problem with stress is that it's different for you than for me. What may be stressful for one person, I mean, one person goes to work to get away from stress at home. Others go home to get away from the stress at work. So it really doesn't matter. Stress is stress. Stress is stress. And we all, that's the problem. We all say, oh, it's stress is everywhere. It's ubiquitous. Everybody has it. Don't worry about it. It's like the weather. Well, actually, we do a whole lot more to control the weather than we do our stress. We drive to work in Rochester, Minnesota, when it's 20 degrees below outside, in a warm car, very dry car, we're safe. But we don't take care of our stress. We're gripping the wheel, and we're getting ready for the day. So stress is stress. Is cholesterol cholesterol? I mean, when it, does stress cause the same kind of uh, elevation and the same kind of cholesterol? I mean, there aren't different kinds. It's one well, kind. Well, it does raise total cholesterol. It does seem to raise bad cholesterol. Unfortunately, it does not raise the good cholesterol. Mm. So it is the bad one. But again, it's the different stresses. But uh, what may be stress for me isn't stress for you. But whatever our stresses are will affect our cholesterol. The key is that we have to recognize that stress and then do something about it so that uh, that is one thing that you can control. All these different things of your life that you can do to help lower your cholesterol. Exactly. And so try to take that into account. Uh, specifically, you know, your food, your exercise is important. But even try to relieve the stress. You know, the little techniques we have for doing that, can, it can be very, very helpful. And what? And you give us a couple tips? Well, you know, the thing that uh, it's very amazing to me, that one of the studies showed that if when you go to bed at night, if you will think of three things you're thankful for that day, that your kid did well or a colleague or a patient or whatever, something which you're thankful for, truly thankful, that will relieve your stress, and also it helps you reduce your risk for heart attack over three to five years. So you're talking about uh, recognizing gratitude, maybe meditation, and those are the things that are helping to actually lower your cholesterol. Exactly. Don't sweat the small stuff. (laughs) What about foods? Uh, Talk to us about the the foods that are highest in cholesterol that we really Mm -hmm. ought to try to avoid if we can. Yes. Well, a couple of things. We all think, well, I'm not eating cholesterol, so I can eat everything else. Nothing that grows from the ground has cholesterol in it. So can you eat anything that grows from the ground? Well, you shouldn't. Palm oil, coconut oil, everybody we see now is on coconut oil because mm-hmm. it's, it's uh, really a, it's kind of overwhelming our Internet presence. It's and a fad. It's a fad. Mm-hmm. Good or bad? Bad fad. Really? It will raise your palm oil and coconut oil will raise your bad cholesterol more than any other food, including lard and butter. Really? Well, how, why has it become so popular? Well, because I think there's a lot of trees around the world that have coconuts and palms and that they put it into oil and they sell it to us. Just ask the bacon people and the coffee people. There's popular, it's, there's no explanation for the popularity and fads of foods. 
Right. So okay. coconut oil is bad for you? Coconut oil is bad Palm for oil. you. Palm oil. It will raise your bad cholesterol. Uh, okay. What else? Well, the trans fats, you know, the FDA is trying to get a handle on trans fats and saying we can't have them in our foods anymore, but it's very difficult because we don't really know how much trans fats is sold or eaten in the United States because it's not tracked. Trans fats are oils that they will hydrogenate partially to make it more stable on the shelf. So if you buy a food and it says no trans fats, fine, but read the small print, read the ingredients. If it says partially hydrogenated oil, coconut oil, olive oil, corn oil, that is a trans fats, eating just 2% of your calories, which for a 2,000-calorie diet could be 40 calories a day, will raise your bad cholesterol 25%, which will then raise your risk of heart attack, stroke, or dying in five years by 25%. All right, so we've got palm oil, we've got coconut oil, we've got anything that's partially hydrogenated. What else? Well, there's the classic things, the uh, saturated animal fats we try to stay away from. And that would be? That would be red meats. And remember, red meat includes dark meat chicken or chicken with the poultry with the skin on because it has a lot of fat in the skin. You get a deck of cards of that, uh, a small deck of cards. So you uh, don't like dark meat chicken. I mean, not that you don't like it, but not, it's not that good for you. Yeah, it is not that it good for you. It has a lot of cholesterol in it. It has. It's red meat. You know, It has the uh, more of the fat in it, yeah. Oh, so you got to eat the breast. <laughs> I like the thighs. Well, and in the end, <laughs> cholesterol is the key, is what we're talking about, ways to control whether it's through your diet or through the exercise, or through stress reduction. Do you suppose mm-hmm. that's the hardest one for people to control, or is I, it diet? Well, I think it's uh, I think it's diet. Yeah. The average American makes about 250 decisions a day on what to eat. Mm. 250. And usually the answer is yes. <laughs> <laughs> Especially if it's ice cream. But hold the coconut oil. That's the bottom line, huh? Mm-hmm. That, it's so interesting. And yeah. no real good explanation as to why. I mean, I thought it was supposed to be good for cooking and good for massage. And it's I've good been for reading your skin. That. I, you Rub know. it into your elbows. It's good there. Yeah. That's how you mm-hmm. use it up. Yeah, I, it's I, a I believe everything I read on the Internet, you know. <laughs> <laughs> We've been talking about the link between stress and cholesterol levels. If people want to learn a little bit more. Yeah, the Mayo Clinic page is really one of the best places to go. MayoClinic.org. Yes, sir. All right. Dr. Stephen Kopetsky, cardiologist, cholesterol expert, Mayo Clinic Rochester. Thanks for being with us. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, drugs that destroy cells associated with the aging process have been shown to extend the healthy lives of mice. Scientists hope to try these drugs next on humans. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Tracy, you know, as we get older, it's not just our outward appearances that change. Beneath the, the wrinkles and the sagging skin, not you, Tracy. Right. <laughs> Did I say that, though? No, the wrinkles okay. and the sagging skin. That It's actually also inside our bodies that some of our cells are aging, too. Now, these cells have been labeled senescent cells. And they no longer function like they should or like they used to. And then they contribute to frailty and other health conditions that are associated with aging. Things we've all heard about, like stiffening of the blood vessels or atherosclerosis, weak muscles and problems with our, with our brains, Alzheimer's and other forms of dementia. There's research underway at Mayo Clinic and elsewhere to find ways to reduce the number of senescent cells in order to delay some of the effects of the aging process. So far, 
the work has just been done in mice, but the results have been encouraging. Recently, drugs called senolytics, which destroy senescent cells, have been shown to improve age-related vascular conditions in mice. Well, here to talk about the research into the aging process is Dr. James Kirkland. Dr. Kirkland is an aging specialist and does research in the Robert and Arlene Kogod Center on Aging at the Mayo Clinic. Welcome to the program, Dr. Kirkland. Glad to have you with us. Thanks. So it sounds like science fiction, but it's something that's actually coming true. I would have thought it was science fiction a few years ago, but it appears that um, interventions are coming along that target fundamental aging processes. And if they succeed um, as hoped um, in humans, they could potentially delay or prevent or alleviate or even treat age-related chronic diseases as a group. Why do our cells age or become senescent? Why does that happen? There are a number of processes that occur over the passage of time to tissues, uh, and they also tend to be, these same processes tend to be accelerated at sites of activity of age-related chronic diseases. For example, um, atherosclerosis or hardening of the arteries that leads to heart attacks and strokes. We find the same processes that occur in other tissues in 90-year-olds are active at the sites where these lesions occur that predispose to heart attacks and strokes. They also tend to be active around the plaques that occur in the brain in Alzheimer's disease. They tend to occur in fat tissue in people who get diabetes. They occur around cancers um, at the sites where cancers develop in older individuals and may accelerate and predispose to those cancers. They occur in joints and osteoarthritis, the kind of arthritis that older people get, and the list goes on. So we've known for some time that aging is the largest risk factor for most of the diseases and conditions that we see in our patients in hospital or um, elderly people who are combating to try to maintain their independence. And it's such a big risk factor that um, it dwarfs all other risk factors put together. For example, your risk of having a heart attack or stroke is elevated maybe two to fourfold if you've got a positive family history, if you've got a high cholesterol, if you've got high blood sugar, if you've got high blood pressure. But if you're 85 as opposed to 30, your relative risk is a thousandfold. And the same is true with all of these other um, major conditions that drive the bulk of healthcare costs and mortality in our older population. So this has led people to question, can we target fundamental aging processes themselves to try to delay all of these diseases as a group instead of picking them off one at a time? Isn't there a bit of a philosophical issue here? I mean, do you really want so many people to live significantly longer than they do now? Won't that ultimately be socially and economically a huge problem? We don't know that people would necessarily live longer. This could be a side effect of targeting these fundamental aging processes. We want them to live healthier. So the goal is not to have people living to be 130 and feeling like they're 130. It might be to have people living till they're 80, but feeling like they're 50 or 60. And indeed, the economic implications have been studied. The main drivers of health costs are these age-related chronic conditions. If we cured one of them, the next one would occur in those same people a few months or a couple of years later. So if we cured heart disease, for example, 
people might live a couple of years longer to die of Alzheimer's disease or a cancer or something else. What you're doing, if you cure even one of the major age-related conditions, even cancer, uh, you're choosing your cause of death. You're choosing a different cause of death than cancer. So the notion is, can we preserve people's healthy, independent function when people are free of pain, disease, and disability uh, by targeting all of these conditions as a group instead of picking them off one at a time? And it's been estimated in some very good actuarial studies that if we could delay the rate at which aging processes occur by 2%, we would save $7 trillion in health costs by 2050 in the U.S. alone. Wow, say that again. $7 trillion by 2050. Saved. Saved. Because people would be healthier. And it also because seemed- you're, you're removing aging as one of the risk factors that go into, for instance, heart disease. Well, hopefully what you're doing is reducing frailty and the burden of disability in the population, which is what drives health costs. And quite remarkably, people who live to be 100, which is largely a familial kind of trait, you know, we find families where a lot of people live to be 100, tends to run in families. It's you know, um, indicating that there are genes involved in this. These people tend to have something that we call compression of morbidity. So in families where we find that people live to 105, we find that the period of disability at the end of the life lifespan is greatly shortened. You've probably met a number, or everybody's probably met people who've lived to be beyond 100, and a characteristic of these people, and it turns out to be true in clinical studies, is that they're highly functioning until shortly before their death, and then they go downhill very quickly. That's Ind- always, yeah, it's always part of their story. They lived on their own until they were 101 yeah. or something. And indeed, the last two years of life, as far as health costs go, are the two most expensive years of life. But a person dying at 100, the cost to the health system of their last two years of life is one-third the the cost of a person who dies at 70. Now, that's pretty incredible, isn't it? So you think you can potentially do this with drugs? Potential. Some and potential is the operative word. Sure. Um, we're pretty confident now we can do some of these things in lower mammals, in mice, and other species that are now being uh, studied. But it's a long leap to humans. And the um, effort over the next couple of years, at least, is going to determine... It, to test whether these interventions actually work in people. Is it accurate to call them an, an anti-aging drug that is being worked on? I wouldn't call them anti-aging drugs. I'd say that they're agents that target fundamental aging processes or basic aging mechanisms. Mm-hmm. And there, there are four of them that operate in tissues. One is inflammation, low-grade inflammation. This is when the immune system gets revved up and operates in some tissues. Another is cellular senescence, which is a major focus here. Another is a bit of a long term. It's called macromolecular dysfunction. That is when large molecules like DNAs and proteins get damaged. And another is when your stem cells and progenitor cells don't work properly. These are the four processes that occur at in tissues with aging and also at sites of age-related diseases. And they're all interlinked. And we find that if we target any one of them, we affect the rest. So our effort at Mayo has been on all of these um, fundamental processes, but we've particularly had some success and done a lot of work in this process of cellular senescence. When do you suspect that you might get to, to human trials? I know you're fairly early in your research, but when can we expect that maybe you'll be trying this on human beings? Very soon. Really? 
You know, that is, it is truly fascinating work. I love it. Thank you so much, Dr. Kirkland, for bringing us up to date on research into the aging process. Dr. James Kirkland is an aging specialist and does research in the Robert and Arlene Kogod Center at Aging at Mayo Clinic. Thanks for being here. Thank you. And where do you go to volunteer to be one of these? <laughs> Take the first dose. That's our program for this week. For more information about topics discussed today, visit us on the web at Mayo Clinic News Network, where you can access a podcast of today's show, previously aired programs, and the latest news from Mayo Clinic. Tweet us your health and medicine questions anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or email us at mayoclinicradio at mayo.edu. We may answer your question during an upcoming program. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. A writer for the program is Rich Dietman, our social media editor, Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for being with us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.